help we want to start uh, a new series from the word of god on uh, joseph and and not just joseph but of course as we look at the old testament we want to behold our god we want to behold god for who he really is we want to see ourselves for who we really are and then we want to see not only god and his greatness and ourselves but we want to see also the lord jesus christ and the gospel so we want to begin uh, this morning a series on Joseph, and that is found in the last fourth, the last quarter of the book of Genesis. Let me just give you a sample, uh, because today we're, we're not going to be here, but here's a sample of the story of Joseph uh, in chapter 39. And many of these stories are familiar. So this part says, Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had brought him, had bought him from the Ishmaelites, who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. I wonder if you're familiar with this story. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him, and he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. A little bit later, near the end of verse 6, it says, Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph. We'll stop there. Again, as I say, that's just a sampling of the, uh, of the Joseph narrative, which is found in the last fourth of the book of Genesis. Today, however, we'll look at chapter 38. But first things first, let us pray. And would you join me? even silently as I lead us out loud in prayer. Let's pray together. Father, help us according to your will as we look to study and not just study, but to preach and to hear and to obey and, and Lord willing to be transformed, Romans chapter 12, as we look at Lord Jesus and as we look at Joseph in these coming weeks and months. Lord, would you help us? We pray right now as we look at a, at a tricky subject, Lord, that you would help us this morning. We know that through the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, in Acts chapter 2, we know that you have given us the Holy Spirit, and we also pray this morning, Lord, that you would give us the Spirit and help us that we may behold your glory. Help us in these moments, we boldly and humbly ask, in Jesus' name, amen. 
So the last quarter of the book of Genesis is Joseph. But technically, that's not right. Technically, if we want to be precise this morning as we begin, we're actually looking at something that doesn't seem to be related to Joseph. Technically, this Joseph section is actually about Judah and Joseph. It's actually about Judah and Joseph, and that's what we want to see here. First thing, first sermon in the series this morning. Now, according to the amount of material devoted, it's, it's mostly about Joseph. And, and next week, we'll just jump right in uh, their own out to talking about Joseph. But today, since we want to honor the fact that this text is in here, we do want to notice, first of all, Judah. We have a focus on both men in this section, but we'll first of all look at Judah. Our text is Genesis chapter 38. And we want to see here this morning, if if you're thinking about the theme, we want to see that God uses a woman to change a self-centered man for his glory and really for the good of the world. Let me say that again. What we want to see this morning is that God uses a woman, an imperfect woman, to change a self-centered man for his glory, for God's glory, and ultimately for the good of the world. Let's look at verses 1 through 11 of Genesis 38. And let me say this first, even before we read. Even before we read Genesis 38, let me make a first point that'll take about 30 seconds, and it's this, that there are some things in the Bible, friends, listen to me, there are some things in the Bible that are hard and difficult, whether that be maybe Paul talking about predestination, we might say that's hard and difficult, but there are other things in the Bible that would make us think, wow, that's in the Bible? So that's the first point that I want to say. Three points this morning, and that's the first one, and we're basically done with that one. The Scripture says, listen, all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. So how much of the Scriptures are profitable for us today? All of them. All of them. So that's point number one. There are some things in the Bible that are hard and difficult, and we might might even say, wow, that's in the Bible. Point number two. Consider Judah. Consider Judah and Genesis 38. Look there with me. Look at verse 1 of Genesis chapter 38. The Bible says, It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. He took her, verse 2, and went into her, and she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan, or Onan. Yet again she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. Judah, middle of verse 5, Genesis 38, was in Chezib when she bore him. 
And Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, or Onan, go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. And notice verse 10, and what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up. For he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. Now let's pause there after Genesis 38, 1 through 11. Remember point number one. Uh, There are some things in the Bible that are hard and difficult. Uh, We may even use the adjective uh, that they are sorted. Listen. Let us not be distracted by something that may seem gratuitous because something in the Bible would actually not be uh, defined by the word gratuitous. There is a lesson here this morning, friends, in one of the chapters that we are going to see talks about prostitution and is pretty a pretty open chapter. There is a beautiful story and a beautiful lesson. So we are thinking about heading number two out of three. And that very simply, again, was consider Judah. Consider Judah and Genesis chapter 38. Now, let me summarize what we've just read. Hopefully, you were paying close attention to verses 1 through 11, but let me summarize what we've just read here. Judah, Judah, this story comes in the Joseph narrative. They're they're brothers. Judah is one of the sons of Jacob, just like Joseph. Judah is one of the sons of Jacob, who was one of the patriarchs. Now, what we see here in this passage, hopefully you notice, is that Judah, he leaves the pack. What do I mean when I say he leaves the pack? Well, the text clearly tells us at the beginning of Genesis 38 that he goes away from his family, right? He goes away from his brothers and he moves away, and this is not good. Not only by way of summary did we read that Judah leaves the pack, but also he marries a foreigner, which in and of itself is not bad, but it is bad when you marry a foreigner, and what that means is you're marrying somebody who does not belong to the people of God. So we mentioned last week that applies today in the New Testament era every bit as much as it did in the Old Testament era. Christians are not to marry people uh, or even really be in serious relationships at all with people who do not belong to God's people. And so we see two things here already. This is, chapter 38 is not a pretty picture of Judah, okay? And the first thing, first strike is that he leaves the pack. Uh, Oh, by the way, it's not safe to go out on your own. And then secondly, he marries a foreigner, meaning not one of God's people. These things are not good. Well, he marries a woman, and we're never told her name. You may have read, you may think, well, her name's Shua. No, it's Shua's daughter. Okay, so so get these details if you can. 
uh, he, Judah leaves the pack. He marries a foreigner, the daughter of Shua. She's a fertile lady. And so they begin quickly having children. Three boys. The firstborn son is named Er or Ur. We're not told much about Ur. Do you remember what we are told about Ur? Do you remember what the text does say about him? It doesn't go into detail. It says that he was wicked. And because of his wickedness, the text tells us that God killed him. It says the Lord put him to death. So that's the firstborn. That's Ur. Uh, He was given to who? He was given to Tamar. Judah said, here's my baby boy. We don't know Judah's wife's name. They conceive. It seems like Judah marries quickly out of lust and not out of love. He married quickly out of lust. They conceive. Ur is born. And Ur is married to Tamar. Tamar is now a widow. She is not only a widow, she's a childless widow. Uh, Matthew chapter uh, 22, you don't have to turn there. Listen to this. What we read about in Genesis 38 was still happening in Jesus' day. It's called leveret marriage. Teacher Moses said, if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. So Judah had how many sons? He had three sons. The firstborn dies. His wife is left to be a widow. So Judah says to his second son, in keeping with this custom that we see even in Jesus' day, we see that he says to his second son named Onan, he says, do the duty, do the family duty, which is... Go to your sister-in-law and, and God willing, impregnate her so that Ur will be remembered. Do you see? So that the firstborn will be carried on. Onan is the secondborn son. And he, like his father, listen, is self-centered. And he gets his pleasure, but he also uses his form of birth control that we read about. And he refuses... He refuses to perform the duty of the next in line, and that was to raise up offspring for the firstborn, you see? And so what? And so the Lord struck him down as well. What he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Son number three is Shelah. Let me stop this summary for a moment and give you a, a takeaway points. And that is this. The Lord is able to deal with wickedness and with wicked people. Listen to me this morning. If uh, you've caught nothing else, then if there's nothing else, then we should notice in verses 1 through 11 that it's very plain that the Lord is able to deal with wickedness and with wicked people. The Bible and God, God has a category for wickedness. Listen, and he will not stand idly by in the face of people who persist in wickedness. God will not stand idly by in the face of people who persist in wickedness. Listen to 1 Corinthians 6. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. 
do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. God has a category in his word for wickedness, and he will not stand idly by when people persist, when people persist in wickedness. They will not inherit the kingdom of God. Well, there was a third son. Joseph's brother, boys and girls, everybody, Joseph's brother was Judah. Judah married a Canaanite woman, and they had Ur, and he was wicked, and God killed him. And he was married to Tamar. And then Onan got married to Tamar, but he refused to raise up children for his brother. And he was wicked, and God killed him. And then there was Shelah. And so it was supposed to be that Tamar would then marry Shelah. It was supposed to be that Judah would care for his daughter-in-law. It was supposed to be that Judah would care for his daughter-in-law by giving her his next son, Shelob. So what's going on in verses 10 and 11? What's going on in verses 10 and 11? Or excuse me, in just verse 11. Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, in verse 11, Remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up. It appears, if you look at verse 11, it appears that all he's saying is, wait till my third son gets older, and then, and then I'm going to give him to you in marriage, which, is, which was the right thing to do. You'll be okay. Because ladies and, and widows in this time were, were basically thrown to the wolves if they were not cared for in this type of way. You see? And so it seems like he's saying, just do this. Go live with your father again until Shelah gets older, and then we'll... Bring you, that's not his desire at all. You see, the end of verse 11 tells us that Judah had this superstition. He's seeing Tamar as the bad guy. My first son died, and he was married to Tamar. My second son died, and he was married to Tamar. And he's thinking in his mind, according to verse 11b, I am not giving my third son to Tamar. She's the problem. You see, he's thinking, it says here at the end of verse 11, for he feared that he would die, Shelah, like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house, and Judah wickedly had zero intention of ever giving Tamar his next son. He was leaving her hanging out to dry. Now that's verses 1 and 11. This chapter is, the main body is verses 12 through 26. The conclusion is 27 through 30. Don't worry, we're going to move through it quickly. And we just looked at the introduction. Let me tell you about what we're about to see. We're going to read the Word of God, and we're about to see one of the most famous stories of prostitution here in the Bible. And let me say, even before we read this, let me finish my thought from 1 Corinthians 6 earlier. Do you remember what I was reading in 1 Corinthians 6? That those who persist in specific sins will not inherit the kingdom of God. The Bible is clear. If you persist in rebellion towards God, whether that be as the scripture makes plain, homosexuality or even greed, which we think is not that big of a deal, but it is. You will not inherit the kingdom of God. But Paul says, but such were some of you. 
and cross away, such were some of you. But grace, but God, such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified. And as we, as we in a sense, stand here and get ready to go deeper in Genesis 38 and deeper into depravity, we are also not only looking down deep, man, we are getting ready to go deeper into depravity. We also see the heights over there of the glory of God and of his plan of redemption. So let's see what happens. Verse 12, Genesis 38, verse 12. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers, he and his friend Hira the Adolamites. When it says when Judah was comforted, it was just the normal time of mourning. I don't think of Judah here as somebody who really cared all that much. It was just the normal time of mourning. And oh, when it says he went up to his sheep shears, that in that day was kind of like college students going on spring break in Florida. That was, it says he was going up to his sheep shears, but what that normally involved was a party. Verse 13, and when Tamar, who's Tamar? His daughter-in-law, right? Was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep. She took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up and sat at the entrance to Enaim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up and she had not been given to him in marriage. You remember that? When Judah saw her, verse 15, he thought she was a prostitute for she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, come, let me come into you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, what will you give me that you may come into me? He answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, if you give me a pledge until you send it. He said, what pledge shall I give you? She replied, your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. Uh, like, give me your wallet, which includes your driver's license and your credit cards. So he gave them to her, middle of verse 18, and went into her and she conceived by him. This whole thing, if you read it carefully, is basically like a business transaction. Because he's self-centered and he's a widower, but he's not done, not wanting to be done with the comforts of marriage. Verse 19, then she arose and went away and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the Adolamite, to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. And he asked the men of the place. Where is the cult prostitute who was at Enaim at the roadside? And they said, no cult prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Also, the men of the place said, no cult prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, let her keep the things as her own. My wallet, my license, my credit card. Or we shall be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat. I kept my word, and you did not find her. About three months later, verse 24, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. 
And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law. By the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Then Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son Shelah. And the Bible is very clear to point this out. And he did not know her again. Point number one, there are some things in the Bible that are hard and difficult, but all of it, 2 Timothy chapter 3, 2 Timothy 3, all of it is profitable for God's people. Heading number two, consider Judah and Genesis chapter 3, and in just a moment, heading number three, in just a minute, we want to see Jesus Christ and then other lessons from this story. In just a minute, we want to see heading number three, Jesus Christ and other lessons from this story. Let's pause. We just read about 15 verses, and let's just make sure we know what's going on. Judah's wife is unnamed. She dies. As we begin reading there in verse 12, quick summary. Judah mourns for her, as was the custom, but Judah is not ready to be done with one of the benefits of marriage. This is, on the surface of it, a surprising chapter in terms of sin and the, and the non-blushing way in which it is presented. This is no doubt, there's no doubt, it's a surprising chapter in terms of the non-blushing way in which it is presented. But it turns into something for the glory of God that God uses for His glory and for the good of the entire world. Well, we saw here that Tamar gets involved. In what we read, we noticed that Tamar becomes a, listen, she becomes a victim of Judah's self-centeredness. Is that really not the thread that goes throughout this whole chapter? The depths of depravity. But you know, on the other hand, I really want to say that as non-blushing as this chapter is, as, as, as much as it is, as it is, wow, this is in the Bible I want to say also this is run-of-the-mill, everyday depravity. In one sense, this is just run-of-the-mill, everyday depravity. And the grace of God is greater than His people's sin. Listen, God saves through judgment. God will judge the wicked. But praise God, there is this doctrine called election, which teaches us that God doesn't judge all of the wicked. Verses 1 through 11, God killed two men because they were wicked. My friend, you may be here today practicing some type of secret sin that nobody knows about, not even your spouse or your closest friend. God knows. And God is able to reveal your secret sin to the public eye like that. This is a story of mercy overcoming depravity. Do you see? There is the truth in verses 1 through 11 that God judges wicked people. Don't just hear me say God judges wickedness. God judges wicked people. But God does not judge all wicked people because of Jesus Christ and because of what He did on the cross. 
Praise God that he does not judge all wicked people because it's not like Judah was all that different from his two sons. His two sons were wiped out by the very hand of God. And was Judah all that different? No, he was a self-centered sinner. I mean, do you see what Judah does here? I've told you that verses 12 through 26 are the body of this story, the main part of the story, the, the, the ordeal about prostitution, Tamar, the daughter-in-law of Judah. But just think about what comes before and what comes after. Think about this with me. What comes before Judah does not care about his daughter-in-law Tamar. Not only does he not care, he's under the superstition, as I've said, that she's the bad guy. She's a bad guy. I mean, what? My first son died. My second son died. I hate you. So go be with your father and, and everything's going to be okay. I'll give you Shella and I hate you and I'm never going to, I never have plans to do that. And then the other bookend, right at the end of the story, man, he says, what's that? Tamar's been acting as a prostitute, and not only that, she's conceived a child by being a prostitute. Bring her out here and have her burned. Do you see? Do you see the wickedness of Judah? And do you see, do you see that the Bible is a mirror and that the same thing is true for us? That if God were to put to death like he did with Ur and Onan, the, all the wicked people in the world, that would include us. That would certainly include me, my friends. That would certainly include the one standing before you today. But grace, but God, such were some of you. And we have not even noticed the best part of this whole story yet. No, she, Tamar, listen to me. In the heart of this story, the the whole deal about prostitution, she becomes a victim of Judah's self-centeredness and lust. She did this because she knew what type of man he was. She knew that it would be really easy to bait him into this. She knew her father-in-law. She knew if I go there and pose as a prostitute, then I will get what I want. She becomes a victim of Judah's self-centeredness and lust. She's already been a victim. She was deceived. Now, she deceives him. And her involvement in this story of prostitution is no accident. Her involvement in this story is no accident, ultimately because of the providence of God and also because Tamar, imperfect Tamar, can I say it? Imperfect Tamar, because she plotted, okay, you're deceiving me. I see you're not going to give me your third son. I'm going to be hung out to dry in this type of world, in this type of society where I will have nothing Yes, I can go back to my daddy's house, but I have nothing. I am a childless widow. You deceive me, I'm going to deceive you. And in all of this, friends, in all of this, the good news, the good news is that even, not even, but especially for the people of God, God is able to use his people's disobedience and deceit for his ultimate glory and his plan of redemption. It doesn't make our sin excusable. Shall we therefore go on sinning that grace may increase? May it never be. 
May it never be. This story goes to the depths of depravity and it highlights the heights of the grace of God. It highlights the heights of the mercy of God. But that doesn't mean that we say, well, let me highlight the mercy. May it never be. May it never be. Because grace changes a man. Listen to me. Grace changes a man. That's what we see here. The grace and mercy of God is only seen to be more brilliant in light of the depravity of man. Notice the change that takes place in a self-centered sinner. Notice the change that takes place that can take place. Oh, take hope today. The change that can take place in a self-centered sinner. Look at the text. Look at the text. Verse 24. About three months later, Judah was told three months later after what? After their liaison, right? At Enaim. Which the word Enaim means something like both eyes open. And God is able to open people's eyes. Look at the text, 24. Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, man, I've hated her for so long now. Bring her out and let her be burned. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law. Hey, before I'm burned, by the way, by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. Tell me whose are these. And notice the change in Judah. Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I. And you know, my friend, repentance is what you and I need. Repentance, true repentance is what you and I need. And that means more than just a mere acknowledgement that I did wrong. That means a specific acknowledgement of where I transgress God's law and his people. And it means a turning. Repentance means specifically acknowledging and turning. And, we, and I'm, I'm pretty confident we see that here. Do you see? I did not give her to my son, Shelley. He goes back to the initial sin. He goes back to the root of the matter. I was wrong. I was supposed to give her my third son. I didn't do it. I deceived her. Yes, she deceived me. I didn't know it was my daughter-in-law. I thought it was a prostitute. That was wrong. She deceived me, but I deceived her first. She, in comparison to me, is righteous. Now, Tamar was not righteous in and of herself, but as though he's saying, she, in comparison to me, she is more righteous than I, and he did not know her again. My friends, you and I need repentance, which comes by the grace gift of God. We need to turn from our sins and turn towards God in Jesus Christ. We need to own our sin. We need to specifically own our sin, and we need to turn. We need to turn and follow the Lord Jesus Christ, who alone is the Savior for sinners. He alone died in the place of sinners. He died for you. He died as your substitute on the cross if you will repent and believe in God through Jesus Christ. See the change that can take place in a self-centered center. Uh, that's tough to say. Self-centered center, self-centered sinner. See the change. I tell you, verse 26 is actually remarkable. It actually evidences true repentance. And you know what? What do you want? What, do you want eternal life or do you want to save face? 
Do you want to save face or do you want eternal life? This would have been embarrassing for him. Bring her out to be burned. Whose do these belong to? Tamar. And that was me. I did that. No, no, no. She can't be burned. That's my daughter-in-law. I was wrong. Do you want to save face or by God's grace, do you want to know and enjoy God forever in the new heavens and the new earth? Not only see the change that takes place in the self-centered center, stay with me. Give thanks for Tamar. Praise God for this lady and for bold, imperfect women. Maybe, maybe another sermon talking about, you know, how do we assess what Tamar did here? I am being trying to be very clear, imperfect, sinful. Give thanks for Tamar. Praise God. Praise God for this lady and for bold, imperfect women. I don't have to remind you of what she did here. Oh, but I want to show you something. Matthew chapter 1. Would you turn there for a moment? Would you turn there? Matthew chapter 1. Maybe you know this. Pastor James Sasser has drawn our attention to this in the past. Give thanks for Tamar. Praise God for Tamar. You know, by the way, this really is the whole story of Joseph. Depravity, wickedness, you meant it for evil. God meant it for good. God is overall. If you're not there, that's okay, but please listen. Matthew chapter 1. What is this? This is the first book of the New Testament. Why is it, why is it called the New Testament? Because the word testament is covenant. Because there's a new covenant through the blood of Jesus Christ. There's something that's changed. The fulfillment the fullness of time, Jesus has come and there's a, there, there's a new testament. We have a new testament because Jesus lived and died and rose again. That's why you have the new testament, friends. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac and Isaac, the father of Jacob and Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. Who's the father of Judah? Jacob. Who's Jacob, the father of Judah and Joseph? Right? And verse 3 And Judah, the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar. We didn't even finish reading Genesis 38 yet. But it's like Isaac and Rebekah. Tamar had twins. Do you see there in verse 3? Tamar, listen to this, had illegitimate twins with Judah. Illegitimate boy sons. And Matthew 1 3 says, And Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, by Tamar, and Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Ram. And you compare this to Ruth chapter 4 and compare it with Matthew chapter 1. And Perez is the father of ultimately Boaz, who marries Ruth, who is a Moabite woman. And they ultimately become the parents of David later on. And it is not going too far at all to say 
that great David's greater son is Messiah Jesus, which is precisely what Matthew chapter 1 says. Matthew 1, 1 through 17, the genealogy of the Lord Jesus Christ. The genealogy of the Lord Jesus Christ is neither ethnically nor ethically pure. The genealogy of the Messiah of Israel and the Savior of the world. Do you know him? Do you know him? If you do, your Savior's genealogy, his ancestry is neither ethnically or ethically pure, as we would like to keep things nice and tidy. No, no, no. Listen to this. Listen. Duguid says this, talking about Genesis chapter 38. The grittiness of this passage helpfully puts to death some of our worst tendencies in reading the Bible. We think in reading the Bible, the Bible's full of these nice stories that help us to live good moral lives. We often approach the Bible as if it were a series of heartwarming stories designed to inspire us to good, clean, moral living. In its place, we find a far more profound hope. This disturbing passage, listen to me. Maybe you've said this morning, wow, that's in the Bible, Genesis 38. This disturbing passage moves beyond the ravages of sin to provide a picture of hope, transformation, and divine breakthrough for Judah and Tamar. It is the story of God triumphing over the evil in and among us. This is the story of, ultimately, the birth of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It has been said, and with this I will close, would you listen carefully? Jesus came not only to be the Messiah for the righteous in Israel. He came not only to be the Messiah for the righteous in Israel, but he will also be the Messiah and the Savior for the least, the last, and the lost of the world. Let this be our message, Crossway. Let this be our message that Jesus Christ saves sinners. He saves sinful people like you and me by bearing the wrath of God in our place on the cross and by rising from the dead. Jesus saves sinners, the least, the last, and the lost. Come to him today. Come to him. Amen. Let us sing together. Thank you.